If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Mother Knows Death presents External Exams with Nicole and Jemmy. On our podcast on Mother Knows Death and in the gross room, we've recently been talking about a lot of stories where there have been people who have been poisoning their loved ones. So I thought it would be great today if we talked to author Lisa Perrin, and she is the author of The League of Lady Poisoners. Welcome, Lisa. Thanks for being here today. Oh, thank you. That's my pleasure. So Lisa's book is really awesome, and we'll get into it a little bit more later, but it takes us on a journey through the history of poison and the women who use them to kill. So <laughs> for any true crime junkie, it is a really awesome book. In the book, you say that po- there's the thought of poisoning makes you paranoid, which it, it, does to, <laughs> it does to me as well. And I don't think that people really think about it, but so many times a a day or even a week you eat prepared food, even if it's just going to the store to get coffee or fast food. And it's not really on anybody's mind usually that how vulnerable that we are all the time when someone else, a stranger especially, is making food for us or in some of these cases, a loved one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But um. I wanted to, before we get started, I wanted to tell you a story of how I kind of always have that on my mind because something like this happened to me. Oh, no. <laughs> so I had a, I had like a friend, I want to say friend because she wasn't really a friend anymore and she was a little crazy. But back in the day, she was making these like weed edibles <laughs> that before you could buy them. Yes. And um, she had made me a cookie and I I took it from her because she was a really she was a really good baker. And Mm -hmm. I just was like, oh, cool, I'll try it. You you bake really well. And it made me so sick. Like I was convinced that I was poisoned. Seriously, like I I had to call my husband and tell him to come home from work because I was I was shaking and just it was bad. And I'm still not convinced that it was weed. Oh, boy. But that. (laughs) Yeah, it's not. So that was like the first time. That I thought, well, you really have to be careful of like people could just do that that quick to you because you let your guard down with food and stuff. It's true. And after you were researching this book, obviously, you did did it change your perspective on this from how you felt before versus now? Oh, absolutely. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. That sounds really (laughs) scary and alarming. It's it's kind of, it was really scary at the time, but it's like a hilarious story to tell now, especially because I made my husband come home from work and he was so mad at me. (laughs) You ate a cookie (laughs) after you home from work? Yeah. No, that's, that's amazing. And yeah, I will say, I, it definitely opened my eyes. And I, I think I say this in my introduction for the book that it made me paranoid in new and interesting ways. I think there is a lot of implicit trust just built into our system. Like, I don't think many of us would think anything of a a cookie a friend made for us. 
And part of me wants to say, we shouldn't. We shouldn't trust most people. And most things are inherently good and, you know, don't have nefarious intent behind them. But it was definitely a sobering reminder for me that, right, we don't really know the story of who handled this, where it came from. Um, I will say it's impacted me more now that I'm becoming the poison lady, which was not necessarily what I set out to do when I wrote this book. And now folks are like, oh, we can't invite you to our dinner party or, oh, don't eat that. Lisa made it. Oh, um, that's great. But yeah, I, it's definitely it's sobering. Uh, and it makes me think a lot more about like the vulnerability when we eat and drink something we didn't prepare ourselves um, in new ways. I'm definitely aware of it in ways I never thought I never even considered it before. Yeah, exactly. And it and another scary thing, too, is that it doesn't even have to be intentional. Oh, it could it, it like I don't know if you've been hearing on the news lately that they're that children have been getting lead poisoning from the applesauce pouches. Oh, my heart. No, that's yeah, terrible. It, and it, it's just like you just don't you don't ever know like and you're giving this to your kid. It came from a factory. They don't know if right. it's like from a cinnamon or something, right. but right, it, it's no joke. Right. No, I actually <laughs> I, I was thinking a lot about accidental poisonings, and that's actually something that comes up quite a lot in my research. Some of the worst, most large-scale poisonings have been pure accidents or, you know, some kind of something that happened in the factory. There was sort of a famous one in 19th century England called the Bradford Street Sweets Poisoning, where uh, there were two bags and one was sugar and one was arsenic and they looked the same. And I believe, and this whole company made these sweets with, unfortunately, with the arsenic on accident and a large number of people, because this was like a, a street vendor selling candy, um, became sick and it was a total accident so yes there's the intentional ones and there's the accidental ones um, so they're they're both worth keeping in mind this actually makes me think of the, my second story of when i was almost accidentally oh no poisoned. i'm sorry you have more than one <laughs> it's 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 this is like another one that sucked at the time but my friend and i were at a really good restaurant in philly like one of the higher end ones and we got some fancy dessert. And you know that, that sometimes they'll like put lavender in something. Oh, and I love lavender. <laughs> and, and, me too. So and and like my my husband hates it because he thinks like it tastes like soap. soap but I, I, knew, I knew that he was going to say that. Yeah. Like a lot of people think it tastes like soap, but I, I don't. I love it. But yeah. I'm eating this dessert with my friend. We were sharing it. And it came out and it had, you know how sometimes they make like sugar sculptures and stuff. Yes. It did have like a little bit of a weird sheen to it. And I ate it and I was like, this tastes like soap. Oh, like, this one really not, did taste like soap. Yes. Like literal soap. Like, like, Dawn, like a spoonful of Dawn dish detergent <gasps> or something. <laughs> and and Soaky. yeah, sure enough, we we returned it to the kitchen and and it was, they had mistakenly like put it instead of a honey drizzle. Oh my whatever. gosh. And yeah, wow. And like the story that you're talking about that happened a long time ago with the arsenic and the sugar yeah. being mixed. There's there's like really stringent rules as things being labeled correctly yes. and not being stored anywhere near each other yes. because that because, has happened. Exactly. And unfortunately, some of these terrible accidents do lead to, well, unfortunately, they lead to these kind of uh, new legalities and new provisions that protect people because we don't want that to happen again. That was awful. <laughs> and now it's like things do need to be really clearly labeled and you wouldn't keep a serious poison in the same place where you're keeping the ingredients for cooking or baking. But unfortunately, yeah. the way we get there is because it has to happen. <laughs> and then we learn. Yeah, and then exactly. we learn from it. But I'm so sorry about the, the dish soap and the cookie. Ah, <laughs> uh, whatever. I'm alive yeah. to talk. About there you it. go. <laughs> to tell the tale. 
So do you have, now that you've written yeah. this book, do you have people like coming up to you all the time and telling you stories like this? Do you have any good stories to share uh, as far as that goes? I will say that is one of the weird things. People reach out to me now to tell me like, oh, my grandmother poisoned a guy. <laughs> <laughs> Or like, we'll send me so the newspaper great. clipping and like, look, in like the 1930s, my grandma poisoned my grandpa. And I'm like, oh my, I don't know if I'm the person you should be telling that to. <laughs> but that's quite a story. Yeah, I think it is, and for the record, I don't want to scare your listeners too much. Poisoning is a pretty rare crime as far as crimes go. But I, I think I was surprised at how often it did come up and that people did have a connection. Oh, I did know someone who that happened to. Um so, yeah, yeah. I, I, people are definitely starting to reach out to me as my reputation as the poison lady continues to yeah. grow. That's that's cool, though. I, I think that's like a good reputation. To have. <laughs> so obviously you're a true crime junkie. Yes. And what like what was it about this crime of poisoning versus any other crime that you were so intrigued by that you wanted to write a book about it? That's such a great question. Um, I think there's so many. I'm. Like you said, I'm a true crime junkie. I listen to Dateline to like fall asleep. <laughs> and I listen to a lot of wonderful true crime podcasts. But I think there's something about poisoning that is different for me than any other type of specifically of murder because uh, it, it's just not as physical. It's not as violent. It's not as gruesome. I think there is this weird disconnect. You can be you can poison someone and not be in the room, not be in the state, not be in the country like there's a weird distance that I find really fascinating about it. And specifically, what intrigued me the most was the connection to women as the practitioners of it. Whereas when we think of murder, and rightly so, we tend to think of uh, male criminals. And that's because uh, like nine, something incredible, like 90% of all homicides worldwide are committed by men. But there is this sort of sociological, we have this connection where we think of poisoning as something that women do. Um, and that it's more duplicitous because women may not have necessarily, um, you know, may not want to strangle or stab or something that's much more visceral and much more physical. Um, but it's sort of this just to drop a drop. Like I have this image of just like just like a dainty drop out of like a ring with a hollow like container and you just drop it in. And there's there's something so fascinating about that story to me. And then there's a story that we've been told and that we see a lot in fiction and in TV and movies and in books. And then there is the reality, which is actually not always the same thing and not always lined up. But I, I think I, poison to me was a really interesting weapon. And I was really fascinated by who we associate those crimes with and then why. That's that's cool, because I think that in forensics, especially and this could be with homicides, suicides, accidents, everything, there is a big discrepancy between male and female and like what like females don't tend to yeah. shoot themselves in the face or something like that just because there, there's like all these like little cool things. So I, I definitely respect that that's what got you into it because it is really intriguing. Um, Some of the news stories that we've covered recently on my podcast have have been really and in on my website, The Gross Room, one particular mm -hmm. one that has been horrendous that has to do with poisonings. Ooh. I'm not sure if you heard of this one, but there was a couple in that were living in Utah and the wife had poisoned her husband with fentanyl, put it in his Moscow mule. And that's like whatever that itself isn't yeah. that isn't that horrendous. But the facts afterwards that come up about things that she was searching on the computer oh, 
But on top of that, within a year after she murdered her husband and the father of her children, she decided to write a children's book with her children about dealing with with the death of a parent. Yes, I did. Several people sent me this art. Believe me, I like. Yeah, exactly. Yes, and and um, that's what I was wondering with your research. Like, obviously, anytime you kill somebody, it's not cool. And, yes. But 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 like, have you? Did you come across one case that you were like, man, that that was really messed up. That person's like sick. Oh oh yes, <laughs> um, definitely. And I will say, uh, one of the things I really wanted to focus on in this book was sort of the nuance of it all and really look at the cultural context. And I think that there's some stories that are more sympathetic than others where you might understand like, wow, this was a woman who was in a really impossible or abusive situation and she was acting out of desperation. But then on the other side, there are definitely the ones who are like, nope, that was a monster. That was a monster behaving monstrously. And yeah, and I think one of the things that I talk about is that we don't associate um, these crimes, you know, violent crimes with women, but women are still capable of it. And unfortunately, there's some women in this book that really um, exemplify that. Um, the, what it made me think of, though, is not the most messed up one, but I have a case in this book of a woman in Argentina whose name was Yia Morano. And just the seeking of attention for it afterwards, like with writing that children's picture book and like putting their grief out there in a very public way. Like she poisoned three of her friends for money um, and they died. And afterwards, she became this big TV celebrity and made all of these appearances on TV shows in Argentina. My favorite was there was a cooking show where the host famously ate a piece of cake that she made. Um, like on live on TV. Um, oh and I'm just it's just so fascinating to me, like wh- the crime and sometimes what the behavior is afterwards and how that transforms. And I was just thinking of that, like the children's picture book um, when you said that. But in terms of one that's just like absolutely like heinous, I think the first one that comes to my mind is Bella Ganeth, uh, who was uh, a woman uh, in like the Victorian era in Indiana. Uh, and there's a lot more to her story, but I'll just summarize really briefly, who uh, basically put out an ad in the newspaper, like a, a, a wealthy widow seeks a husband and plan of adjoining fortunes. Uh, my favorite line, the whole thing is triflers need not apply, which I want to oh. have embroidered on a pillow and just have it oh like the God, front yes. of my home. <laughs> triflers need not apply. And she basically s- sort of was reaching out to these lonely men. Uh, who were looking for companionship, which is not unlike what we still experience today with a lot of these dating scams and catfishing. And she told them to come to her home in Indiana, tell no one where they were going and to sew their life savings into their undergarments, bring everything they had. They were going to live this beautiful life together. And she just murdered all of them and <laughs> and like buried them in her hog lot on her farm, uh, poisoned them and then bludgeoned them and then um forgive me, it's gruesome, cut them into pieces and uh, yeah, and then buried them. And the best part, and by best, I mean most awful part of this story is that uh, in the end, when she was close to getting caught, uh, she set the whole barn on fire that she lived in with her children. Um, And there's a big mystery of if she escaped or if she went down with the fire. And I won't spoil that for you all. But yeah, that's that's one that just sticks in my memory is you can't dream that up. Truth is stranger than fiction. It's just unbelievable and yeah, and monstrous. I, that's how I feel with this this particular case. It's like she was she was due to close on a house the day after she poisoned him, and she did. Hmm. Could you imagine like someone that you love in your family dying and just being like, "Yeah, well, I have this booked tomorrow. I have to go." Yeah. And then she had a party to celebrate oh, the closing of the house. Yeah, and. 
That tells you a lot. Yeah, it's it's just and and I I just hate in the news they have to be like, well, she hasn't been convicted yet, and I'm like, come on, what else could this be? Like, no, sometimes the facts speak for themselves, and the behavior that's so interesting, right? To keep going. Oh, yeah. well, I had it on the agenda, so I'm still gonna do it. Yeah, exactly. All right, so another case that we talked about, and I'm I'm sure you've heard about this one too, because all your friends are sending you these cases all the time now. This is my life now. But yes. <laughs> exactly, there was a. This is actually a man, believe it or not. There was there was a couple in the news this year of men poisoning their wives. Yes, and this was a Mayo Clinic pharmacist. So he was not only a man, but he was also a poison specialist. Mm-hmm. He specialized in poison, mm-hmm. and he went through a lot of trouble of researching certain kinds of drugs that would never really be shown up on routine toxicology and he chose Ooh. a gout medication yep that'll and, do it yeah exactly and afterwards it was like it was found that he was looking up like what dose would be lethal with her weight oh and everything gosh. like that but did you in when, in all the cases that you research and it, it doesn't even have to be ones because obviously you probably left a lot out of the book too Ooh. um but did you have any cases that came up that it was a person that was like a specialist in whatever they used to to poison someone with? Yeah, totally. And um, I will just clarify quickly. And I think this was sort of the big shift in my research is that it's really not true that women poison people more than than men. Actually, uh, because men commit murder so much more often than women do, they use every weapon, including poison, more often than than women. So it's at first I went, oh, no, my thesis. And then I realized, oh, it's actually really much more interesting to explore this if it if there isn't as much truth to it. So, yes, uh, you, you'll definitely see cases of men doing it also for the same reasons we ascribed it to women, because it's uh, something that's easier to get away with. Potentially, you could pass it off as natural causes or diseases. You don't have to have the same physical connection to harming a person. You can sort of disconnect from it in your mind. Um, but yes, in terms of are there specialists who ever take advantage of their skills and specialty? Absolutely. There's a whole genre of murderers, and I'm, I'm sure you've come across this before, sort of the angels of mercy, um, which is folks who are specifically in the medical profession who use their access to medications and to vulnerable patients, um, unfortunately, uh, to Oh, yeah. One of my murders. friends, what great friends, uh, Amy Locker, and she's the, from the Netflix series, The Good Nurse. Oh, yeah. The movie. Oh, my yeah, gosh. Th- I mean, that, like, that's her that's her life story that she one of her friends was poisoning his patients. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. And I have a few of those uh, specifically in the book where it's someone who is in the medical profession or in a caregiving situation to uh, an older person because they have access to medication. And um, we're just in a situation of inherent trust with our doctors and caregivers. We we assume if if a doctor handed me something and said, drink this, I, I would say, okay. You know, yeah, I don't think exactly. I would second guess it. And, and unfortunately, that can give people who have nefarious intention a really dangerous opportunity to enact uh, scary things. Yeah, it's, uh, exactly. Wait, I have a really funny, well, I, you might think this is funny, but my... So speaking of men poisoning, so there was another case last year, too, of a dentist who used arsenic, actually, to poison his wife. But in both cases, that one and the Mayo Clinic pharmacist, they both used um, smoothies to poison their wives. Smoothie. That's my smoothie. Oh. (laughs) And I, I was joking around with my husband and I was like, you know what? 
I would be so suspicious if you handed me a, a smoothie if you could even figure out like where the blender was in our house <laughs> and how to put the ingredients together to even make me a smoothie. Oh. I would be like, what's up with this? Where did you find that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the um so one of the last cases that you presented in the book was in 1955. Mm-hmm. And obviously there has been like evolution yes. in in poisonings because now Every single case that I've spoke about today and that ones that have been happening over the past couple of years, there's like associated Google searches. Yes. And I love how in the book you mentioned that your Google searches are probably like major. Oh, <laughs> suspic- oh, I'm sure suspicious. the FBI is like aware of me. I had to search like, which is the worst poison? How do you where does it come from? How do you get it? And I'm like, I know that like some FBI agent is like, oh, we need to watch this one. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, obviously, like I I write about murders and near deaths yeah, like all the us. time in my Google searches. Like sometimes I'm like, oh my god, these people are going to be like, what, like, what is this girl look looking up? But mine are so bad for so many years that I think <laughs> I know I wanted <laughs> to I'm type into Google radar. like this is research for a book. <laughs> FBI agent, please, please take me off your watch list. Like I'm yeah, I'm a law abiding citizen. I try really hard every day. <laughs> That's so great. I I love that. Another thing that I loved in your book was how you mentioned that the only difference between like medicine and poison is the dose. Yes. I think about that. I say that all the time time about Yeah, like I've been saying that all the time about um alcohol. It's yeah, that's an important thing. You just are kind of like slowly poisoning you to the the point where you feel a buzz, but it that's what you're doing is kind of slowly just poisoning yourself. It's true. I low dose. No, I think about that often. The same, the very same ingredient or chemical uh, in a, a certain small controlled dose can be a valuable medication that can really help people and save lives. The same exact thing in a larger dose um, can be a poison and can kill a person. It's it's a really sobering reminder about quantity. Uh, like yeah, you said, right? a small <laughs> amount of alcohol or a reasonable amount of alcohol can be a you know a fun or safe way to wind down in the evening but you too much and that's alcohol poisoning and that's true with anything that was the other surprising thing um you can poison yourself with anything it's not easy but if you ate like 6000 bananas in one sitting you might get like potassium poisoning like you can overdo anything so all things in moderation yeah <laughs> except arsenic pv no except not arsenic sure. that's not in any quantity please <laughs> yeah exactly This episode is brought to you by Nicole and Jemmy's Anatomy Book, a catalog of familiar, rare, and unusual pathologies. Do you need a perfect, inexpensive gift for someone who loves medicine or pathology, or for someone who is just a little odd? My book would be a perfect gift. Nicole and Jemmy's Anatomy is a journey through the human body and all the things that can go wrong with it. In the book, I tell stories of over 100 people and show pictures of their pathology. While some of the images in the book can be pretty graphic, the book itself is actually quite beautiful on a shelf. And if you want to make this gift even better, you can also get a personalized book plate from me that sticks right inside the book. Go to my website, thedoramodder.com slash book for more information. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, 
that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. All right. So let's talk about you a little bit sure. more. Um, you so you're not you're not a toxicologist. You're not no. a forensic scientist or anything. Nope. So what what is it that. How did you get into this field? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm like, I'm not a, a psych criminal psychologist. I'm not a forensic scientist. I'm just a weirdo um, <laughs> who finds this stuff really, really fascinating. And um, I happen to be an so illustrator. You're an artist yes. by profession, really, right? That's right. And yeah. um, I love your art. Your your book is is so beautiful. Oh, thank you. And um, like, so I love it. I actually wanted to ask you, like, are you planning on making like merch and stickers from it because you probably oh. should i because thank every you. person that i've shown the book to is loves thinks it's awesome oh thank you so, so much yeah this was this was sort of my magnum opus <laughs> the, like my dream project i realized I'm, i usually do book covers i'm a, like primarily in my freelance work i'm a book cover illustrator and i do other things like products um and advertising and editorial and institutional work as well but i'm primarily in books but this was my first chance to like make my my own book like create the cover and all the interior illustrations for a book i researched and wrote and illustrated so like i i knew i wanted to go all out go bigger go home and especially on the cover having done maybe 30 covers for other books i was like everyone was like what are you gonna do for your cover and i was like i don't know but it's gotta be big <laughs> i gotta go hard on this um, but yeah, I, I, I am an illustrator and I'm a professor of illustration at an art college in Maryland where I live and where I teach. Um, I feel like I lost sight of the question on that one. No, I mean, I just, I want I'm really curious about it. I wanted to know what the process was like. So when you, when you went and kind of pitched this book or whatever, were you, you were always like, I'm doing all the drawings in it too. That was, that was your thing. Yeah. I actually feel like I sort of came into this backwards. Um, so during the the worst days of the pandemic, when we were all quarantining, I finally had the time to work on a personal project and the like energy and enthusiasm to do it, which those things never line up. You either have the idea, no time, or the time and no idea. And a friend of mine um, had sent me an article on Julia Tofana, which was a 17th century woman who sold poison to women in abusive relationships in Italy. And the headline for this article was something incredible. And it was like, woman confesses that her poison was used to kill 6,000 men in Renaissance Italy. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. Why don't we all know that? Why are we all talking about that? And because I'm an artist and an illustrator, my way to engage with this was I did a whole bunch of research about her and I realized there was no existing portrait of her. And I was like, oh, and they always use these images from like paintings from that were often done in the Victorian era, but they were always of like women from the medieval world. And she didn't live in the medieval world. She lived in Renaissance Italy. And so I said, oh, well, I'm going to do some visual research. I want to make a portrait of what I think she might have looked like. And I sort of found this format where I drew her in the middle and then I hand lettered her name on the top and then had a summary of kind of her story on the bottom. And I really enjoyed doing it as a personal project. And I wondered, are there more stories like this? And I started researching other women who had connections to poison. And it began as an illustration series. Um, and I didn't know it was going to be a book or anything bigger at the time. Um, but then when I had about three or four of these illustrations, I realized, I think I have a pitch for something. And I reached out to um, a an editor who I was like, I 
I dreamed of working with. And I was like, this is a, I'm going to go out on a limb here and see what happens. And she just responded really well. And one of the conversations we had early on was, do I just want to illustrate it? And should I work with an author who uh, has more experience with this? Or do I want to write it myself? And I, I have an English degree from a long time ago, and I love research and I love true crime. And my colleagues were like, do it. You can do it. And yeah, it, it was the hardest but most rewarding project I've ever worked on. And I think it really is my baby because I got to do every part of it from the research to the writing to the illustrating to the cover. Um, and now all the fun stuff afterwards. I It's been just an amazing journey for me. But yeah, it was definitely something where I was like, I almost talked myself out of it. I was like, I can't do that. Um, but I'm really, really glad. But it was definitely a learning curve. I had to slow down and really like learn how to do the research correctly uh, and like how to find credible sources and then just how to organize how to tackle such a, a large project. It took me about three years from start to finish. Yeah, I mean, it it shows. It's oh, it's really you. it's really awesome. I loved how you dedicated the book to to your parents. Yes, uh, that was so great. Um, and yeah, for those of you who, who haven't read it yet, it just said something like to my parents who thought that my first book was going to be a children's book yep. or something like that. Like it's it's just great. And then and then like the opposite is, oh, no, I'm just writing about a, a book about people, women who kill people. Like, <laughs> Whoops. Sorry, mom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's but I'm sure they're like. They, they're so super proud of you. They probably think it's like so cool, you know. Oh, yeah. They've been really excited about it, too. But my mom, I cannot tell you all, many times my mom said to me, I really wanted your first book to be like a nice children's picture book. And she's still like, you could still do it. You could come back from this. You could still do a nice children's picture book. And I'm like, I think I'm on a journey now. And it's it's taking me somewhere darker and weirder and somewhere so much that's so interesting to me. So and again, yeah. a lot of illustrated books are for children. So I was sort of like, I have an idea for an illustrated book, but it's for adults. It's for like true crime obsessed adults. Like I like so it's definitely sort of an interesting like, will they even let me do this? And I got very lucky that I had a publisher and an editor who was like really down to let me try it. Yeah. And I'm sure they're happy that with their decision I to let you so. do it because it's because <laughs> it's so, it's great. I love it so much. Oh, thank you. That means so much to me. So speaking of like this, then. Now your career is kind of taking a different turn yeah. than you probably thought even five years ago. Truly. So are you gonna are you gonna continue with this on this path? <laughs> I think so. I think yeah, life's funny. I don't know if I ever could have dreamed that this is where I was gonna be, like you said, five years ago. But I'm I'm really grateful for it. I think this is like my dream. Like if I could talk to little Lisa from like <laughs> middle <laughs> or high school, and I would tell her you're like writing and illustrating about like really weird history and true crime and fascinating topics. I think I'd be like just over the moon excited and so happy about that. Um, and I, yes, I, I actually just spoke with my editor last night and we're working on plans to discuss what the next book is going to be. So and I, I won't reveal anything just yet because we're figuring it out, but I'm, I'm really uh, excited for this, this development, but I'm still going to keep doing uh, book covers and teaching and all the other stuff that I love doing too. But yeah, I think this is like a really lovely next, uh, and forgive the part, pardon the pun, a next chapter uh, for <laughs> me is is going to be more in sort of writing and creating uh, my own books. Yeah, and it's it's cool because it's the the book is so beautiful, and it, I could see there being 
multiple different versions that you could kind of line up on your bookshelf and it looks really pretty. But then, you know, you have guests over and they pick it up and and it's it's pretty. It, it yes. I feel like it's I like it so much because it's the same kind of vibe that I wanted to have with my book that like it yes. looks really pretty. And then when you open it, you're like, oh, my God, this is like really horrendous Gr- stuff that you're yeah. looking at. Yeah. Well, I love that juxtaposition of something beautiful next to something really dark. I think that's very compelling and enchanting. And I think it also shows the nuance that many things are both. They're good and bad. There's light and darkness in, in most things. And I definitely wanted to create a book that was sort of not just not just something that would be interesting to read and to look at internally, but I wanted it to be like an art object that people would want to display and have out in their homes and be really excited. Like, oh my gosh, this looks so cool next to my candlesticks or this little vial that I collected. (laughs) So for our own little personal, I'm looking at your bookshelf behind you and I'm like, that is the dream. Like, like that's exactly where I wanted that book to live. It it looks so at home. Oh, and it looks great. It looks great living on my shelf. It just like, and and when people come over, they just look at it and they're like, oh, what's this? This is really cool. Thank you. And and I think that's the power of book covers. Like I said, I've been in book covers a long time and I don't believe that people don't judge a book that way. I think that's a silly expression. I think that expression relates a lot to people. We shouldn't judge people by their outward experiences or or outward experiences. uh, what would I want to say by their outward uh, the- yeah it's just like the presentation they're putting out there like yeah you don't want to thank you but books we totally do <laughs> well yeah because who's going to pick it up off the shelf if it's not it's if true it's not like drawing you in you know oh I believe that one of the one of the coolest parts of the book was that which was a little unexpected to me that I didn't think that I was going to find in the book reading it was that it was not only a history lesson on poisoning, obviously, but it was also kind of an introduction to the history of forensics and toxicology. Absolutely. Um, I didn't really expect that you were going to touch on that in the book, but it, it was it was really cool how that came about and how you had you were talking about one of the women who were convicted of murder. She was the, mm-hmm. considered to be maybe one of the first people convicted of murder due to forensic toxicology which is so cool and that was back in like 1840 or something and I just wanted to know if you had any other unexpected things that you came across when you were researching all of these people that were doing these crimes no I think that's such a wonderful point and I I think in this story the the scientists end up really being the heroes in some of these cases because like you said um, there really wasn't forensic toxicology really wasn't a field uh, within science and within uh, detective investigation until the 19th century. We had really limited ways to like we could think a person probably poisoned someone. But I always thought this was so fascinating. There was no way to really prove it scientifically. Um, and the case that you're talking about is Marie Lafarge, who was uh, the first woman convicted uh, on forensic toxicological evidence because of this innovation by James Marsh called the Marsh test, which was able to prove the presence of arsenic uh, in, uh, and even to minute amounts in bodies, tissues, post-mortem. And before that, there really that didn't really exist. And that scientist had actually been um, on a previous case where they, he was, even though he found evidence of arsenic in a man's tissues, it had like disappeared by the time it came to present that evidence in court. And in that time period, they needed to see it to believe it. And that person got 
uh, was proven innocent and got away with it and later confessed, I did it. Ha ha, I got away with it. And he said, I got to invent a better test for arsenic. We can't, we can't let this continue to happen. So it really is the scientists, I think, who end up curbing up this spate, specifically of the arsenic murders. You don't really hear of that too much anymore. Well, I guess the occasional smoothie arsenic murder. But because now it's so easy to test for it, right? Before that, there really wasn't. And I was reading about what the best system they had for it. And I'm sorry, because I'm an animal lover, so I don't like this, is they would feed the meal that they believed made that person sick to an animal oh to God. see what happened. And that was like, that was their best scientific thing that they had. And even before that, I think the, like, the test in like, goodness, maybe the 13 or 1400s was you had to throw the food in the fire. And if it smelled like garlic, then they believed it was arsenic. Like there just really wasn't. Um, a credible scientific system for this. So the scientists end up really having a large impact on how criminals used these poisons. Because like you said, now what they're doing is they have to research what poisons are not often searched for uh, when they're doing these post-mortem exams. Because we've come so far with toxicology and you can't just poison someone with arsenic anymore because they're going to test for that. So I think that that is so interesting. And Marie Lafarge, I think it was just bad timing for her that she... Got caught. She was the first one to get caught that way, and she might have gotten away with it if she'd acted uh, even a little bit sooner. So, I always think about that, like, what what's going to be the test in 200 oh, years gosh. that they look back on and say, like, do you believe people used to do this all the time and get away with Because yes. I, I know people still get away with murder all the time. I'm sure they do. Just because of the, the way the system is. Like, oh, yeah. For example... At the medical examiner's office, sometimes they have so many bodies, and if they have a person that comes in at, that died at home and is maybe older and has a giant scar on their chest that indicates they had heart surgery before, and they call their doctor and say, hey, your, your patient died, would you sign the death certificate and say they had heart disease or whatever? And he's like, yeah, D the doctor say like, yeah, they, they could have died from that because yeah. I was treating them for that. Yeah. Then- End of story. Right. They won't but look like, into it further. Yeah, they won't look into it further. And they do do like a, they, they do like a quick toxicology, but that only tests for like opioids and, and just like cocaine, yeah. just ba basic things, right. like basic three or pill. four basic things. Yeah. So I, I just look at that and I'm like, OK, but how do you how do you really know that the wife wasn't just like over him and just. <laughs> yeah. And that's the the thing like there's this book is filled of women poisoners but just the women we know of or just the women who got caught i think about that a lot that there's probably so many stories we don't know and we'll never know because they got away with it yeah it's 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 really it's just it's really interesting and i just i i always think about that like we're so advanced in medicine and forensics and then you think like what is what is getting what's got down the line that right now we would think is completely crazy but it, totally. it's true why and you were saying that poisoning isn't it's definitely now is, is not a common cause of of murdering someone at all. It's it's rare. It's rare. But I think the three or four or five maybe stories that have happened this year are probably like one of the only ones because they get so much attention yes. because the, it, it's so shocking that people still do that, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's not that poisoning is a common crime. It's just a sensational crime. So when it happens, they end up, you know, in the media and really prominent. But it's not, honestly, guns are responsible for a whole lot more violence, but we're so desensitized to that that the poisoning crimes really stand out. Um, and that's why we end up hearing about them more, and maybe we think they're more common than they are. Um, but yeah, I was... It, oh. I feel like some of the people actually could have gotten away. 
You this know? is when when you when you work in like certain fields like pathology or mm. like police or detective, you have to have some kind of like semi sick mind to think <laughs> like how people well, you do. would commit crimes yeah. in order to, you know. You gotta and reverse when, engineer it. How did we get here? What did they do? Yeah, what were they exactly. Yeah. Like you have to try to think like them and I, I look back at, at all of these, just looking through all the case, and I'm like, most of these people probably would have gotten away with this if they weren't acting so weird. So weird. And, you know, like that's, you're you're having like a party after your husband dies, right? Yep. So, of course, everyone, every normal person's going to be like, okay, this is weird. What What's yep. going on? And Yeah. And then start looking at your Google searches, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay. It but just unravels. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like it's it's just the whole thing of it is just very interesting to me because with a normal like at the medical examiner's office if you if you die and the normal the normal panel isn't going to necessarily pick up yeah anything unless they're keyed off to check for things because they think a poisoning suspicious. Yes. So that that doctor for example that poisoned his wife with the gout medication like that that wouldn't have come nope. up. Who would think to check for that? It's so uncommon. Yeah. So it's like they almost get have the perfect idea of a crime, but then they don't. But they don't finish the job. <laughs> Commit if you're gonna do it. Yeah, do the exactly. whole thing. Do it right. <laughs> Stop being so flashy at the end with the parties. Yeah, exactly. Or the life insurance, Act or the this, or subtle. the that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if that's any advice that we could give you. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm not encouraging. <laughs> But yeah, I actually, there's stories um, in my book like that, too. And actually, the last story is one of uh, a nurse, Jane Toppin. And one of the reasons she got away with it, and there were many, was that she used two very unusual medications. She combined atropine and morphine, um, which had really unique symptoms where they contradicted each other. Like one made the pupils big and the other one made the pupils shrink. So they ended up looking normal, but the person was experiencing all these things. And nobody would test for atropine and morphine. So it was just something that she got away with for a long time because she used less conventional poisons. And she was a nurse, so she had access to these uh, chemicals. And how did she eventually get caught? She overdid it. She murdered a whole family. Um, this, this is what happens. Like, it's like if you just if you just did, you're like, you're a genius, right? You thought like, okay, yeah. use this drug to do this and this drug to do this so the body looks okay. But then you get you get like greedy and then. Yeah. No, it's just like I hate to say this because I'm not condoning what they did. But if you could have just quit when you were ahead, man, and just walked away. But they can't. And I think it's there is a psychological component to this, too. After you don't get caught, I think people get really cocky and they're like, ha ha, I'm smarter than the law. I'm above the law. I can do whatever I want and get away with it. And then they get sloppy. Um, and that's usually their downfall. Exactly. That seems to be a common theme. Mm -hmm. Well, are, so you said that you're talking about doing another book, perhaps. Is there any other projects that you're working on? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I'm just working on some book covers right now. Um, I'm doing a romance book cover uh, oh, for one cool. that's just really, really fun, like a Regency era one. And I just finished up a book cover for um, like a middle grade novel about like a cool magical school for like Again, it's but not quite like Harry Potter or anything like that. They're more like, um, like Grim Reapers and stuff go to this school and they all learn together. It seems, but that like yeah, mostly I work on book covers and I'm working on some potential pitches uh, for the next book. But mostly, like I said, I'm a professor and we're in finals time now for the end of the fall semester. So that's that's mostly where my head has been at. 
Did you ever think about doing your book in an audio book too? I know you want, because I feel like, like I like audio books, but I also like to have the book too. Yes. Just because the way like my life's kind of hectic with kids and everything, like I like to just put it on and like, I feel like I could listen to a book and also clean my house or paint my house. or something. Oh, yeah. Cleaning and painting. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that something you ever considered? You know, it, it never came up. I'm also a big audiobook fan. I'm listening to like two different audible books right now. Um, and I love to listen while I'm doing Usually while I'm illustrating uh, other things, yeah. like working on projects, I love to listen. It never came up for this book. I think probably because it is so richly illustrated that it's such a, a visual experience, too. But it's something I can mention to the editor if it's something you think uh, folks would like and respond to. Um, but yeah, they never oh, asked think, me about I it. I definitely think so because I think that the the biggest thing right now is like true crime podcast, oh, and yeah. it's just very it's very interesting material. And I think that you have enough text in the book mm-hmm. that it, it it's not going to be a super huge like a huge audio yeah, book, be. but people would still like that too. To I listen. think I, I yeah I definitely and I. And I think like most people I know like to have the book with with the audio book. Yeah. So I, I, I understand that like it's a it's a visual book and stuff. But I, I just thought that that would be cool because I really like. Yeah, it's it's easier for me to listen to an audio book and get, oh, like totally do two things at once. <laughs> no, I'm also a multitasker. So uh, I'll tell her I'll tell my editor you said so. But yeah, actually, when I was doing research for the book, my favorite thing to do was to get both the physical book and the audiobook, And I felt like that really helped me understand it was to have kind of both the, the visual and the audio together. Yeah. Um, me too. And you're like, I I'm like a learner that does better when I hear than than when I actually read, yeah. you know. But yeah, but I I love th- the way that your book is set up because it's not it's not just like a black and white book that you're reading because that they're like brutal for me. But <laughs> yeah. the, the 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 illustrations and stuff make makes it easy for people like me that aren't the best readers to oh, read as well. You. That's wonderful but, to yeah. hear. I'm so glad because yeah. that's part of the reason why it's there. Is to, I, I hope to aid with the experience and to make it easier to read and move through and kind of give your eye breaks and an opportunity to sort of interpret the information in a a different way besides reading but then you get the image that sort of reflects it too that's why i think picture books for adults should totally be a thing oh they 100 percent should because i i am just like i'm always honest about this like i just don't like to i i'm not good at reading yeah like i don't if i just sat there and read a regular novel it's very hard for me to absorb the information but like with your book for example i'm a very like photogenic memory Mm, kind of mm. thing so when i see one of the pictures of these women that you draw then i i it helps me visualize and remember what's happening throughout the book so i i like that that's so great to hear thank you for sharing that with me yeah because i think a lot a lot of people um don't recognize that that people aren't the the same kind of learner you know (laughs) oh absolutely like I said I'm a teacher so I think about that a lot like and having multiple ways to get to learn something or have access to it and people can kind of choose how how or use both or as many as they want or need to help them sort of access and understand the information yeah because when I was a kid it it was like audiobooks were really I mean they came on tapes right (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah I I remember cassettes um, I had a whole yeah exactly so many cassettes but they were it was frowned upon big time oh, when yeah. I was a kid. And now I love that. Like my kids are little and they're in school and, and they are really 
they're like, we don't care how it gets in them as long as they're picking it up, you know? Yeah, it's about the content. It's not about the vehicle. I think that's, I'm really glad that that movement is happening in education. Because like you said, so many people, and especially children, learn in such different ways. Like, why does it matter how they got the information as long as they're learning? Yeah, exactly. I I think the same way. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. It was really a pleasure. Oh, I had so much fun. Thank you so much for including me. This was a blast. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Mother Knows Death. As a reminder, my training is as a pathologist assistant. I have a master's level education and specialize in anatomy and pathology education. I am not a doctor and I have not diagnosed or treated anyone, dead or alive, without the assistance of a licensed medical doctor. This show, my website, and social media accounts are designed to educate and inform people based on my experience working in pathology so they can make healthier decisions regarding their life and well-being. Always remember that science is changing every day and the opinions expressed in this episode are based on my knowledge of those subjects at the time of publication. If you are having a medical problem, have a medical question, or are having a medical emergency, please contact your physician or visit an urgent care center, emergency room, or hospital. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Mother Knows Death on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you get podcasts. Thanks.